0: I think sometimes, like, fallenness can get so discouraging, you know, the brokenness, the sadness of this world, that we, um, we're we so disturbed, you're almost like, what use is all this? I mean, that, that's a lot of, like, in Ecclesiastes, it feels that way. I was uh, just meeting with the youth age boys, and I taught their class, and we were talking about, uh, I said, like, does work ever make you just the work that you have to do. like It's not like they're going to a job or like something like that, but it's just the work you have to do. Does it ever seem meaningless? And the reality is they would say, yes. You know, schoolwork sometimes feels real meaningless. And sometimes even like your parents might say something like, you just got to get it done. Uh, you know, it, it. You know, there's really, we don't know. We didn't use it either. But you got to do it. You know, then you feel like it's doubly meaningless. You know, I mean, there's just... Things that discourage us and things like that. We see a lot of things. And then we'll just see dark things. And every one of those students, they've seen things that like are not good things. Things that they would not want to emulate or, or live in. You know, and and you know, they don't want to live that way or, or act that way. Or There's just a long list of things that we would kind of face in life. And um, I think this reminds me a lot. This section, I would think of it as like a, this is a pilgrim moving through life and struggling with the complexities of life, and yet he's going to give us some wisdom at the end as far as how do you journey down this life. And if you've studied pilgrimage literature in the Christian tradition, you know that uh, oftentimes in pilgrimage literature there are things where there are meet, there's a meeting of uh, minds along the way, and some are positive and some negative. And so that's kind of part of the deal. You're on this pilgrimage and uh, you're going to have all these things. and that's what life is uh, as God's guiding you and leading you. And so hopefully, as a fellow traveler, we'll walk together today through this text and come away with things that will be clearly help us as, as we're facing these things in life. And so uh, I want to just repeat kind of what we've been uh, through so far. In week one, uh, we saw, he says, that, you know, life is, there's a lot of vanity and striving after win. And he wants you to see that clearly. And so in week two, he says, wisdom, pleasure, and work, things that people strive after, these things, I mean, these things, if you're trying to find ultimate meaning in these things, all security and happiness and joy in these things, they're not going to produce it. In week three, He says, but in in light of that, just understand that everything that's going on in this life, all the times, the times to be born, the times to die, the time for, uh, you know, hatred of something, the time to love, all those things, all of these times, the Lord uh, has created them all. And in part, it kind of guides you to see that there is this, sovereign that's ruling over the whole world, and we ought to stand in awe of him. He's saying he's guiding those times so that you will stop and say, I can't believe that this is all put together in the way that it is. Week four, which is where we are now, and like I said, I would focus in on thinking of yourself as a pilgrim in observation, going along through life, trying to do uh, right and, and walk in a good way, this would help you with that. But here's what he's going to start with. He's going to say wickedness and oppression are everywhere. We see that everywhere in the world. And so what you've got to come to is say, you know what? I can't fix all those problems. You may be a means of fixing some of those problems, but you can't ultimately fix them all. So do your work and don't go at this journey alone. That would be a way to think about these things. So um, when Ryan and I were talking about this this week, he would look at these, the first section, 316 to 4.3, and he said, I would just call it the sad state of life. And then in four, 4 through 4.16, so now let's just, we need to pursue living in a wise way. So again, just think in terms of a pilgrim, observing sad things, and yet trying to live in a wise way, because you're going to face some of that. So we're looking at that. We're looking at the difficulties. We understand that all we really can do sometimes is just say, the thing God's given me today to do, I'm going to do, and to do it not alone, live this life on this journey, run with a group of people. And that's really what the church is. The church is we're not dishonest about the world. We're not putting, like, rose-colored glasses on about the world. You go out into the world, there's dark things. What we say is, come back here together. We're going to, like, kind of clean you up after you've beaten up a little bit, and then we're going to, you know, help you out along the way, and then we're going to send you back out into this world. But we don't want you to live all alone. Because when you live all alone, it's a really dangerous uh, place to be. And so let's start and let's just look at this sad state of life. 3.16, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So what's he saying? When I went to the places where everything should have been right, they were wrong. There are some of you that may have been on different sides of things, but when you're thinking about the place of justice, I think about the gates in a city in the ancient world where people would come and they would say, if they had a problem, they could come to the gates. And there the elders would be, and they would make judgments about situations, and they would try to fix it. And then you also think in terms of, maybe our own world, and you say, maybe the court system's where I can go. I can ultimately go there, the place of justice, and I'll surely find justice there. But he's saying, no, I found wickedness there. And so it's like uh, if you were to study uh, history and look at some cases and all that kind of stuff, sometimes people are accused of crimes they did not commit, and they're convicted of them. And sometimes when you look out there, you say, there are people that get away with murder. And really, sometimes it is people that have a lot of money, they can throw it at the situation and they can get out of stuff. And you think, there's a long list of things where people are doing wrong. And again, this pilgrim's moving through and he's looking at that and saying, the places that ought to be right are not right. And then the other thing, in the place of righteousness, again, uh, righteousness, it would be maybe a place of purity, a place of holiness. There's wickedness. So he's kind of like when you're thinking about that, you're saying, well, hmm, what would that look like? I mean, you might say, the church is a place of holiness. The place where... Holiness should reign. Purity. The place where you could go and get the pure word. The truth. The truth that both convicts and comforts. And if you were to go throughout this world and look at churches, there might be places that you, there are places that you could go where you would say, there is no truth there. The truth stumbled in the streets the truth doesn't exist I met with a couple this last week and they said I can't believe how and i, I think it is something we should like uh, be thankful for but just how saturated in truth this place is they're new to the to the like to that they've never been around that quite like that where you just can learn and and understand and we're not it's not a, again one of those things where you're like Oh, uh, we're we're, uh, the best at every one of those things. But what we try to do is for you to sit down and read the Word with us and get clarity about what God says. Not your hobby horse. I'm saying the Word of God. What does Ecclesiastes say? We're saying there's clarity there. We're trying to give you an unadulterated truth. We want it to be clear to you. But also we want your life to be filled with that. So both the doctrine to be good and your life to be good in the truth. Be grounded in the truth. And so he's saying like not wickedness there but righteousness there. We want you to be able to not only understand the truth in very instructional ways but also be able to imitate other people's lives that walk in that. And we have tried to develop people in that way and we have seen that on display. And so I just think it's important. He's saying in both of these places where you would think you would find good things, there's not good things. Scary things here. Frightening things here. And so we want it to be right. And we struggle with that. I'm not saying we're going to be perfect. Nobody thinks that. I don't. They're, they're, we are fallen human creatures struggling, even if we are redeemed ones. We are trying to get to the place where we are doing what is right. And he's saying, I'm seeing a lot of wrong, a lot of darkness. So the wickedness is all around. If you study the Old Testament, you will see that over and over and over again. And you're, this can disturb you, and it should disturb you. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. Now, I think this is, okay, uh, I don't, and I was talking to the boys earlier, I, I think usually when I think about judgment, I think about you've done something wrong. That, that's just my natural, I don't know if that's your natural thing, but like a judgment means, oh, there's something wrong. But actually, like if you and I, I was telling them, let's be an example. Be like if you owned a piece of land, I owned a piece of land. I put a fence up on my land, and you're looking at it and going. uh, The other guy looks at it and says he took up some of my land. You know, like I think he put his fence five feet further than he should have, and so you eventually have to go to a judge, and you take. Uh, your documents that show that your land goes that to that five feet. When the judge is done, he'll look at you and say, You built the f- fence in the right place. And he looks at the other guy and says, Now pay the court costs that took him to get through all go through all that stuff. He did the right thing. You can receive a judgment that is in favor of you, or a judgment that like condemns you. And what he's saying is. God is ultimately going to look at His people and pronounce over them blessing. And He's going to look at those who have rejected Him and His ways and pronounce over them a curse. Ultimately, God's going to make everything right. And you can trust Him for that. Now, Acts 17, 30 and 31 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What he's saying is, Jesus will be raised to the, from the dead, and he will judge the people perfectly. And those who are, have not repented and put their faith in Christ, there is no hope for them. Those who have, there is hope, eternal hope, a steadfast hope. And no longer will there be sorrow or pain, Revelation 21 says, but he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. No more mourning, crying, or pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And so we even pray as a people, God, bring justice. God, come back. Jesus, return. I want you to return and destroy the the deeds of the wicked and set up your kingdom forever for the righteous. So I think it's important just to say that. We're saying, okay, ultimately this is all going to be brought out. Now, we're reading this Christianly because there are moments here where he's reading it and struggling through some of these things. And and I think we can struggle through them. We have to read and think and consider how is this all going to be fleshed out. Now, look at verse 18 through 21. He's going to say... Death comes to all. So we're looking at this life, and you're thinking, what in the world is going on? Notice the comparison of the beast to the man. He's saying, you know what? They both are going to end up in the same place. The beast dies, and the man dies. And that's something that we need to stop and consider, because you're like, what is the Lord doing? Sometimes this man is looking and saying, you know, what is it? how is it better to be human if we're both dying? If both are going to end up in the same place, if both are going to end up just dead, what benefit is it kind of to live this life? He, again, this pilgrim's moving through. He's seeing oppression and, 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 and difficult things, and he's watching all this on display. And as he looks at it, He's shocked by it. But he says, ultimately, there will be a judgment. Uh, But he says, you know, when you really stop and think, look at this, the beast and the man, they both end up in the same place. Sometimes, as one of the guys said in the class earlier, we think that we're better than animals. And in reality, we are. We're the image bearers of God. But there's still this thing where he says, like, when it comes to that, When you look at the animals and they're dying and you look at you and you're dying, what difference is there? Now in verse, he's going to talk about that. I think it's important just to understand one thing is to just say, we need to consider our death. And that's not bad. It's good. It's good to help you consider it and to think about it. And I think we need to stop and sometimes just say, I need to stop and remember, I am going to die. Even on the hardest days, happiest days, Whatever days we just need to kind of see that. Uh, one of uh, the things that I read this week, and I thought it was really good, by uh, Philip Ryken. He says, uh, "What is the resp- or your response to your mortality? The approach taken by the Order of Trappist monks is worthy of emulation. Together, they dig a grave. Every day, they go out to the grave site, peer over the edge, and ponder their own mortality." When one of their numbers die, they lower him into the grave and cover him with dirt. Then they dig a new grave and start the ritual all over again, never knowing for certain who will be the next to die. What do they want to do? Remind themselves. Keep themselves aware that they too will die. So the world has wickedness. Death is your future. What do you do? Look at verse 22. So I saw that there's nothing better than a, that a man should rejoice in his work. That is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So what is he saying? He's saying, well, you just take each day. Do the work you have today. Again, looking at life just under the sun, I think you have to be careful. So At one level, you're saying God's given this gift to man. On another level, he's just saying, like, look, uh, you have work to do today, just go do it, just go do it. I mean, like you can rejoice in it, and there's aspects of that, and then sometimes it's just, uh, it may be hard, and you find it hard to rejoice in he's saying, just rejoice in the work you have, whatever God's given you, just do it. Take each day and consider what you're able to do. You do not know what tomorrow brings. That, that's kind of the, 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 the thought here. Um, And then he realizes, though, for a moment, he stops and considers, but what about those who are in horrific situations, like really, really horrible situations? What about those people that their situation is so oppressive that they can't even rejoice in their work? It is so hard and so horrible and so evil. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done in the sin. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they have no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressor there was power, and, on, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. He's saying there are situations, because here's, here's the wisdom person, somebody that's not very wise, this is what they say. All I've ever done is lived in a middle to an upper middle class family in America, and that's all I can see. Well, that's someone that's very simple that can't see any other aspects of the world. Maybe they've never traveled anywhere. Maybe they've never read anything. Maybe they are just that self-absorbed that they think that the whole world is like that. But the reality is there are people that are oppressed. And he says, when I look at that, it's almost like I would. it would be better for you to have just died rather than to have to live. There are people in places like that. Or, verse 3, it would be better that you would not have, you have never been born. He's looking at life in the sun and says, some people face such horrific, so this is a pilgrim he's moving through life and he is looking at and observing life and he sees the oppression and he sees the sorrow and then he says you know what for some of us we just work and enjoy whatever that is because we know our life is going away and then for others it's almost to the point where he says i wish uh for some it's almost uh, as if i wish they had never been born and so you're kind of left there thinking okay is that is that it is that it Well, I want you to look back at verse 21. It says, But who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. What's he saying? If you're just looking at life under the sun and you're seeing people die and beasts die, and that's it, then there's not a lot of hope. But, as we think Christianly, one, and this guy understands this, but again, he's kind of pulled away from giving you the whole vision of God, this man makes it clear that he, he's struggling with, like, is there any future? We come in and say, we know, wisdom writer, that you know that there is a future, but you're not bringing all of that out. I mean, Psalm 49 speaks of that. Ecclesiastes 12, at the end, he's going to speak to the future. He's going to say that, you know, your body will turn to the dust, but your spirit returns to God. But as we look at the Bible and look at everything about it, we would say, okay, God has certainly allowed lots of suffering in this life. But all of that is a reminder that we are only here for just a moment. And afterwards, there is a future with God. And so what we do is we say, what we want to do with others, whether they're in a most horrible situation or they can enjoy some of their life, we want to drive them to the matter of the gospel and say, Jesus came, Jesus died, He died for our sins so that if those who would believe in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. We come to them and say, there is hope. Even in the darkest of situations, there's a Deliverer who is going to rescue us from this present life. I read another thing from Riken, and he spoke of this civil war Correspondent Samuel Wilkerson, who claimed this great promise as he surveyed the carnage from the Battle of Gettysburg. He said, uh, as, he, as he was looking at that and despairing over it, he ultimately um, came to his own son's body, who had been killed there. And he saw that. And he was writing to uh, an article in the New York Times, and he said about his son... O oh, you dead, who at Gettysburg have baptized with your blood the second birth of freedom in America, how are you to be envied? I rise from a grave who set clay. I have passionately kissed, and I looked up and see Christ spanning this battlefield with his feet reaching, and reaching fraternally and loving up to heaven. His right hand opens up the gates of paradise. With his left, he beckons to those who, Mutilated, bloody, swollen forms to ascend. What's he saying? He's saying, I sat there on the battlefield and I thought about what Jesus was doing there. And he was calling forward his people, even though they had faced horrific difficulties of war. He's calling them out and bringing them to himself. So he's looking at the sad state of life. He sees the oppressed. He says, Enjoy your work as you can. Some of you may not be able to. And then he speaks of how to kind of do that. How to enjoy that. How to enjoy life and live in a good way. One is this. To be content. That's one area that he is going to address. He's going to say, live a life of contentment. Now, do people struggle with that? Do you struggle with that? Yes, do I struggle with that? Yes, of course, you're going to have... Moments where you struggle with that more. But look at verse 4. Then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. What's he saying? He's saying that there are people that are spending their whole life working only to try to get more than their neighbor has. More stuff. Um, Their neighbor, you know, your neighbor doesn't have to be your next door neighbor. It could be your Instagram friends. (laughs) They could be your neighbor, whoever they are, to have more and to get more. I was with a guy um, having coffee a few years ago, and he had been very successful. And you know what he said? He said to me, the only thing that really bothers me is that there's those few friends from our high school that have done better than me. Most of them, I know without a shadow of a doubt, I beat them. But not everybody. What was he saying? He was saying, like, his whole life was driven to have more than somebody else does. And not a Christian worldview. This is not, he's saying, like, live a contented life. You don't need a bigger boat, better gadgets, nicer house, whatever that might be. Your whole life could be spent, like, chasing after those things. It's foolish and sinful. The other one is, though, you might say, I don't care about work at all or what my neighbor has. I'm happy with what I have. And so, I'm not going to do anything. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That's kind of a shocking thing, because you're like, he's idle he's idle we live in a culture that a lot of people are striving to do as little as they possibly can it's nuts I think what is that how is that okay verse six he goes on and says again wisdom helps you so it's helping you see the whole picture he says, "Don't be greedy. Better is a handful of quietness than two handsfuls of toil." So, rather than folding your hands, don't fill them so much. That, that's kind of the the balancing act. There's this work and rest theme that God has set into this world, and I struggle with that at times. Where I think, like, I, I don't know if I'm, I don't, I don't know if I'm, I can do that very well. Like, it's it's a hard thing to. To see that and to understand that and to consider that. God even set among his people times for them to rest. And he would work with them in that regard to give them a balanced life. A balanced life. So he tells them this is what it means to live in a wise, wise way be content. And then he goes on and says, work with others. Some people would rather do everything by themselves. They want to be the hero of their story, of their life. When they work with someone, they'd rather work with people lesser than them or at least perceived lesser than them so that they can speak of how great they are. Some people do that with their spouses. Some do that with their kids. Some do that with their co-workers. Some do that with whoever. And what he says is, It is better to work with others. God designed you to work in partnership. A a wise life is a life that as you journey through on your pilgrimage, that you're not doing that all alone. He says there are some people who work their whole lives and they forfeit for riches, let's say, a wife, children, friends, They forfeit all of that stuff, and they don't even really know why they're doing it. Some of the grumpiest kind of Mr. Potter type people that you'll ever meet, like in It's a Wonderful Life, are those who've like forfeited all those things in life. And they have gained what you might say the whole world from the standpoint of riches. But they are the, like, grumpiest and greediest and harshest old man you'll ever meet. It's a frightening place, you might say. He says in verses 9 through 12, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. It's almost like saying they're going to be more profitable. For if they fail, one will lift him up, but woe to him who is alone when he falls. The deal is, the idea is Remember, this world has a lot of trips and falls along the way. You know, it it has a lot of ups and downs. He goes on, you know, to be alone uh, with regard to warmth. He says sometimes you need someone to keep you warm. And he goes on and says in verse 12, And though a man might prevail against one one who is alone, two will withstand. So he's saying be in partnership with others. It benefits you when you're down, it benefits you when you're cold, it benefits you when you need to fight. All those things benefit you. Deep friendships in your activities of life are of great grain, gain, I can't say it, they're of great gain. And a Lone Ranger, even Lone Ranger, has Tonto, Remember? it's funny to me because it's like uh some of the people that I think are just the most of that kind of uh individualistic you know type people or whatever uh I just think sometimes I think like are you are you really you're not are you that foolish do you think you did this all by yourself you think that you're the one are are you that silly and simple minded the wisdom teacher says don't don't be foolish that that's it's silly. And so, he says, you know what? It's, you need other people to help you along the way. Not only that, you need other people who will give you advice. If you're like the smartest in your own mind in the whole world, you don't ever need anybody's advice. You're, you, you don't want to hear from other people. And it's what he says. He kind of tells a story. He says, better a poor was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer could listen. The old and foolish king that could not listen to anyone, he, he would spend his life in his own head rather than hearing from others. And it cost him dearly. But then he illustrates that young king and he says, you know what, though? Even though that young king is wise... He may build like the greatest kingdom in the whole world, but he too will be forgotten. And so don't take it to the point where you you think that the ultimate thing is, like, if you do live this wise life, that it'll make, make your life so great, you know, and it'll be the best. So when you think about this whole story, I think when you think about a pilgrimage, you think about it and you say, you know what, you're going to see some sad stuff. You're going to see things you're going to be like, man, I just... I don't understand. Why is this going on? Why does it continue to go on? God's going to deal with all that. God's going to address that in time. God's over this whole world, He's reigning over it. He's over all the times. But also, we could come away and say, you know what? As long as we are in this life and we are moving forward, let's do our work. Do it in concert with others, do it well. Do it to bless other people. Do it and live your life together with them so that you can accomplish more for His glory and the good of others. Let's move forward in that and prayerfully do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask for wisdom and direction about the kind of people we put around us. We thank You for this church. We thank You for the wise voices here. We thank you that of those who will run with us. I pray, Lord, that you would guide us and direct us in everything that we do. In Christ's name, amen.